politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for life, liberty, property, and true equality here at CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Hurwitz, back here today for Thursday. And we got a lot of interesting things to talk about today. You know, of all the top eight to ten existential threats to our society, our liberties, our way of life, really, until now at least, the last two generations, the lead ship in the armada of those who have destroyed Western civilization is identity politics. Okay, that's how they made people feel guilty. The sexual stuff, certainly the racial stuff. And that is what has gotten us to adopt. I mean, think about everything from education to employment to all sorts of public policies. Fiscal policy is all based on race. And now you got the gender politics too. Of all things, I do feel that we have the biggest momentum, the biggest tailwinds at our back when it comes to identity politics. And we're going to have coming up a little bit later on law professor discussing the affirmative action ruling, the Harvard admissions case, and what that means, what we need to do about it. We'll start off before then with, with the gender side of it. But I think it's undoubtedly clear that on both fronts, we are winning. All the polls show that. I'm not going to tell you I have faith in the public. I really don't on a lot of things. But I think it's reached the point that people have had enough of just the unfairness of identity politics. But like everything else, just because you're winning on the message in the abstract doesn't mean the policies will change on their own. Whether it's a court ruling, whether it's just in general it's lost favor with the public, you have a successful boycott or two. It's not self-executing. You have to change it. And that's why here we always have a sense of urgency. See, I'm not black-pilled. I'm red-pilled. I don't think it's all, all is lost. It will be lost if we don't change the game, create a movement that's focused on substance and outcomes. But if we did, I think particularly on these issues, there's a lot we can win on. So I want I want to I discuss that again from both angles of the identity spectrum of, of evil today. First, speaking of spectrum, you need to have 2020 vision, a spectrum of vision to actually see properly, function properly, and even think properly. Yes, your brain works with with your eyes. And it actually is a spectrum of prescriptions. And that's why I recommend better spectacles. See, when you look straight ahead, that's one prescription. But when you look down to read, your eyes torque in and converge in a way that gives you a slightly different prescription. When you look peripherally, that's another prescription. So with these glasses, you can actually move just your eyes. You don't have to move your whole head, and it accommodates it. It's, it's really an ingenious technology. They have the biometric intelligence glasses. Not only is Better Spectacles the only... A conservative American company, but they import authentic German Rodenstock eyewear. But part of the problem is you go to a lot of stores nowadays and they're all marketed towards fashion. 
and the functionality is really secondary. Even if a store offers expensive name brand lenses, they're at least a decade behind in technology from Rodenstock. So that's why I want you guys to go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative. Uh, everyone in the audience who has gotten it has not been disappointed, just like uh, my glasses, my family. I know Steve Dace has gotten uh, better spectacles as well, and I adapted to them right away. Uh, they're changing lives daily. So again, go now to betterspectacles.com slash conservative to schedule your teleoptical appointment and get 61% off your frames today. So, folks, we have this um, article here. You know, when you talk about the dichotomy, and it's not even a dichotomy because they kind of work together, between the seriousness, the urgency, the destruction of these policies, but at the same time, it's kind of two sides of the coin, the blowback and the opportunity to fight them. By now, some of you have probably seen this. There's an article been floating around from offthepress.com, and it talks about the fact that 38% of students, it's actually Matt Lamb of the Washington Examiner is the, is the, is the original source, 38% of students identify as just one of the sexual alphabet things up from 14% in 2010. So obviously, they're way ahead of everyone else, but that that's a reflection of the broader society. Totally normal, totally natural, just like being born with blue eyes and red hair. You're just born that way. Yeah, in a matter of a few few years. Like, this is not funny. And I, I just want to say, again, before we get into the racial part, but with the gender ideology... We have the opportunity to extirpate this garbage from our society completely. But if we don't do it very soon, it will be embedded. Some of you might have seen the discussion I had yesterday on Steve's show where I was saying that Bruce Jenner is so much of a greater threat than William Thomas, who's called Leah Thomas, the one messing up female swimming. And my point was, you know, two things. Number one, female sports is not doesn't rise to the magnitude of civilization. Like, on the trajectory to a quarter to half of all kids being born, now being groomed into an environment where they're confused about their sexuality. I mean, that's literally procreation right there. But when, when you look at a poll, it says 40% in a given area don't identify as something that could procreate. Like, that is a nuclear bomb that's literally dropping... Hiroshima, Nagasaki on America. You can't have a civilization like that. This is a point that conservatives have to stop shying away from. Stop finding some sort of like oblique, glancing way of making the argument, well, it's going to create logistical fairness problems in female sports. I mean, that's true. But is that the biggest consequence of this? And that's where the Bruce Jenners come in. They're like, call me Caitlyn. Gender is fluid. And not only that, if this is accepted on the, on the right and the Trump right. We are okay with this is what it is. Just don't screw up female sports. That's his message to create this fake Overton window where you fight over some minute point all the while 
creating bipartisan consensus behind something much more destructive. And this goes well beyond Leviticus and, you know, this stuff about cross-dressing and homosexuality and whatever. God forbid, Allah forbid, should we ever believe in that in this country. But this is just, you don't even have to be religious. This is a separate point. You could be the most, you know, homosexuality is awesome. I mean, sodomy, it just doesn't get better than that and all this stuff. But you have to admit that forever that could only remain a tiny minority lifestyle. Because what happens if you take 25% of, of all humanity and turn them into that? You can't function. I mean, let's forget, even the people who abhorrently believe in same-sex couple adoption, which is pretty pervasive among conservative loserdom, they have to admit, where the hell do you get that kid from? It's never going to be an equal proposition, even in their you know, perverted, decadent worldview. It just can't be. So at some point, you need to uproot the premise of the argument and go after the fact that you can't have a civilization where you're grooming people that it is an equal proposition. You could be a man, you could be a woman. You could love a man, love a woman. That's never... Again, I'm making a secular argument here. Purely secular argument. Not that I shy away from the biblical argument. Although it kind of is the biblical argument because there's Leviticus and there's Genesis. This is really more the Genesis argument. Civilization is built off of a woman and a man. And a woman acting womanly and a man acting manly. And as I've mentioned before, it's not just the tranny stuff. It's this broader like you go girl culture that like Women are 100% encouraged to work even during the formative years, uh, you know, full-time, just like a man. You're a lesser person. If you don't, you're a failure in your career. Motherhood is a, is a weighs you down. And then just this whole general kind of like, you know, ruining the culture of a lady being a lady and a, and a man being a man, masculinizing women and feminizing men. <clears throat> I'm saying, even short of what we've seen the last couple of years, this thing has been coming in, in the culture for a long time. And by the way, some of that does tie into our next discussion with affirmative action. This whole thing with, and I know I'll get hate mail for this, but um, this whole thing of like encouraging in mass women in combat and, and women in police and fire, fires, and, and, and inevitably, obviously, a lot of it is built off the same affirmative action that you have with the Harvard and UNC admissions case. So this really all ties into it. But I think as a society, we have dabbled in this for so long. It's like a dr waking up from a drunken stupor and you're like, man, that was stupid. And I think that's where we are. It's gotten so bad. Now, there's still way too many insane people, but it's certainly a majority opinion against this. But we have to... First of all, as a conservatives, we need to start living the life of Genesis, you know, you know, Genesis 3. We need to live that life. 
stop adopting the leftist culture while claiming we're against it. And B, as a matter of policy, we have to forge ahead extirpating every references. And and now, you know, the good thing about the tranny stuff is it gave us an opportunity now to go after the libraries and the schools with the pornography, which, you know, the stuff that even predated some of the the LQ whatever stuff. No pornography should be okay. So we're winning on this issue. The worst thing we could do is to have Mar-a-Lago and Rick Greenell and Bruce Jenner create consensus beyond a minority view while we're actually winning as a majority. And we we can't, I mean, this thing has to be shoved back as soon as possible because this is this is just unsustainable. So that is the first part. I want to get to the race stuff, but first, just some news from from Congress. Uh, this segment is sponsored by our friends at Raycon. Okay, in the summer, you know, certainly if you're on vacation, you're going to want to walk around with everyday earbuds from Raycon, wireless earbuds. But even if you're not on vacation, summer is a time to relax. Um, I have my soundtrack popping with country music, also you know, the few podcasts that I actually believe in, audiobooks. Good time to unplug, stop ruining your eyes and your brain with screen time. Sit back, relax, listen. Now, let me tell you this right now. Raycons are the best way to listen. First of all, they're the only earbuds that actually fit in my ears. Um, I always had a problem with that. That's why whenever I do TV, you see the thing like popping out of my ear. They start at half the price of other premium audio brands, but they sound just as good. And 32-hour battery life, including eight hours of playtime, so you could listen to what you want, when you want, for a really long time. They got noise isolation and also awareness mode, so you could use earbud tap functions to toggle between three customizable sound profiles. And again, the bottom line is you get all the bells and whistles with half the price. Also, if you don't believe me, 45-day happiness guarantee, so you really can't lose on this. Create your own soundtrack with Raycon today. Right now, CR Podcast listeners get a special 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash conservative. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash conservative. Again, buyraycon.com slash conservative for 15% off your everyday earbuds. So one of the things bleeding over where, where we, we, we really are at a precipice, and this is very important, like I talked about yesterday, we need all hands on deck to force all Republican members to A, vote for the amendments, getting rid of affirmative action, gender and race, racial agendas in the military, this is the, in the defense authorization bill, and making sure they commit to the fact that they will not support an NDAA and vote against final passage if not enough of these amendments pass. So late last night into the early morning, you know, it worked. And, you know, I think in this show we had a little bit to do with that. Most of the 27 amendments I supported, ranging from going after the green energy stuff, the vaccine stuff in the military, um, obviously the gender, the racism, Ukraine funding, they will all get a vote. 
We even have an amendment, uh, I think, from Andy Biggs requiring them to pass an audit and otherwise they face a, a half a percentage budget cut, which I think is a very important sea change and attitude and mentality change in this traditional Republican mentality of it's all good when it comes to the military. Just spend as much as much money. No, you know, it, it's time to hold them accountable. So the next two days, you're going to have a marathon of dozens and dozens and dozens of amendments Um so watch my Twitter account, at Arm Conservative. I, I might do a roundup in a, in a column at some point, but I'm going to try to highlight and link to the voting tallies on some of the critical amendments. And But again, I mean, this is where it's just bizarre. Tucker Carlson could tweet out Marjorie Taylor Greene, a couple other amendments on cutting funding for Ukraine. He could do that. I don't know why he doesn't do that. You know, this is your top issue. Don't tell me, well, I'm more philosophical, not activism. Yeah, but, I mean, you're not allergic to it. It's okay to do it once in a while. And again, I think this would make a big, big difference. We're at the cusp of really getting rid of this stuff. This is important. And by the way, just one thing on Ukraine before we get to our guest on, on affirmative action. Uh, on Tuesday, British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace, he said at that... Uh, um, Lithuania NATO summit that he's hearing from a lot of people that were sick of being Amazon for Ukraine, like their private Amazon. I told them that last June, I said to the Ukrainians when I drove 11 hours to be given a list, I'm not Amazon. So if the freaking British Secretary of Defense could hold that view, is it too much to ask that the Republican Party hold that view? I mean... But yet still, I, I, I mean, we have almost all this GOP senators, governors, and we'll see what the vote is like in the House, but it's, it's tough. I mean, there's almost no way that passes because you can only lose five Republicans. Now, you might, ironically, there are still a handful of liberal Democrats that are somewhat, you know, principled on their anti-war stance. So that will bleed in. I mean, I'm not anti-war, by the way. You know, obviously, if they come to our border and we need to wage war, you wage it in full force. It's just that I'm anti-getting ourselves involved in things that, you know, have no national interest, no good national interest outcome, um, no logical outcome whatsoever. And they're just these sectarian tribal wars over, over territory that's been disputed and cannot be held against the advancing party just because of the ethnicity of the people and it's just we've done too much of this I'm not against war like again i don't want to get into this like aimless endless populism without any grounding i'm not anti-war it's like it's like again it's like are you pro-vaccine anti-vaccine are you pro-surgery anti-surgery are you pro-immigration are you anti-immigration it's amounts it's types it's times it's prudence it's it's all that but anyway you know the, the affirmative action stuff, I really do hope that it will get unanimous GOP support. And then the question will just be, when the Senate Democrats balk at it, will the House hold their ground and refuse to pass another NDAA without it? So that's something definitely to watch. But let's get to our guest. So folks, right before the July 4th holiday weekend, we really got uh, an amazing victory in the spirit of the Declaration, all men are created equal. 
likely on par with you know rulings like the Dobbs opinion, very, very seminal opinion in the case of UNC and Harvard admissions, where they ruled, hey, you know, it violates the Constitution. You cannot have race-based preferences. As Roberts said in his majority opinion, an individual's race may never be used against him in the admissions process. Um, college admissions are zero-sum, he noted, a benefit provided to some applicants, but not to others necessarily advantages the former group at the expense of the latter. So, you know, again, I, I've been a critic of, of Roberts for, for a while where we often, you know, don't even want to read his opinion. We just want to go straight to Thomas's concurrence. But he, in this case, his opinion was pretty categorical uh, for Roberts. And you read language like that. What should follow based on that language is that certainly at a governmental level, because remember, Harvard, Harvard is technically a private institution. It's just based off of public funding. So based on this opinion, we should be able to extirpate all race-based preference acknowledgement in terms of government programs completely. But the reality is, it's really not self-executing. It's not like Obergefell in reverse when you have a liberal court opinion. It's like, oh, marriage is gone. Oh, boom, all 50 states, done. No questions, no pushback. No, they'll say, all right, well, it's a case in controversy. So in this case, in the case of Harvard, you can't use this process. But truth be told, it, it won't even end the litigation on even all admissions cases, much less you move on to employment, government programs. Um, Congressional Research Service has a report, and this is from ages ago, so it's only gotten worse. And just in terms of explaining the scope of, you know, just how much we take race into account in terms, and not just like societally and culturally, but in literally government legal favors and programs goals or set asides for minority groups women and other disadvantaged individuals have also been routinely included in federal funding measures for education defense transportation and other activities over much of the last two decades and now this is really four decades and we have this going on even in red states and it will continue to go on unless we make it stop the court ruling will give us great momentum, but it's not self-executing. Now is the time to really press our advantage on it. So to discuss this and more today, I want to bring in a, a new guest, um, Rob Steinbuck. He's a law professor at University of Arkansas, Little Rock. He was actually cited in Clarence Thomas's concurrence for his work on affirmative action and some of his academic papers which we'll get to. He's also the author of the Arkansas Freedom of Information Act. He uh, worked in the past as an attorney at the DOJ, at the Senate Judiciary Committee, so really has a lot of governmental experience as well, and it's truly an honor to welcome him today. Rob, really, I've been meaning to get you for so long, and what a time in your line of work. Welcome to Blaze Media for the first time. Great to be here, my friend. Thank you. All righty. So, so let's just um, start with... Your line of work that was, you know, you got a pleasant surprise. You woke up and you found you were quoted by Clarence Thomas. So he was, my understanding is the context he was using you to push back against the dissent, which often a concurrence does. Justice Jackson 
said, quote, black people and other minorities have generally been doing better. But those improvements have only been made possible because institutions like University of North Carolina have been willing to grapple forthrightly with the burdens of history. And basically the grappling means things like affirmative action admissions. So in what way did Justice Thomas use your work? What is your work pushing back against that premise? We all know it's unfair to to whites and Asians, but how it doesn't work for blacks either. That's exactly right. And that last point of yours is the key to the research that I've done that was cited by Justice Thomas uh, in a co-authored opinion, excuse me, a co-authored article that I wrote with Richard Sander. And we studied the effects of affirmative action on law school graduates. In particular, we look at how they succeed or fail on the bar exam. Uh, And our study along, by the way, with a previous study that I did, and let me reference that one in in response because it it encapsulates perhaps more uh, 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 simply the point that I'm raising here, which is I looked at a very large data set of students and the the bar failure rate for black in this cohort of some 500 students, I think, uh, was double that of white. Now, uh, from uh, uh, you know, so these people already graduated law school. They took the bar exam, and you have twice the failure rate for black than you did for white. Now, it's obviously not a function of their skin color, right? This is not uh, a function of race, but race is by definition linked to affirmative action. So what we've done is we led in students with dramatically lower metrics, which do in fact reflect abilities, and then expect them to do the same as everyone in their class. And the paper that I did with Richard Sander, in fact, highlights that latter point, which is you can't put students with dramatically different abilities into a class, dramatically lower abilities, and expect them just to uh, magically keep pace. And that's the mismatch problem that we talk about, and why students, uh, minority students, without the benefit of these huge uh, uh, preferences, would do better still going to school, but going to a school in which they are well-matched with their classmates. They won't be fishes out of water, so to speak. And that's the difference. We've got to ensure that students are going to the right school. They will succeed more, not less. Wait a minute. So if if you could throw out some of your numbers there, if I'm getting this correct, you're suggesting that your research shows that if you try to, at the front end, give black uh, prospective law students a leg up based on race and not, you know, ability to make maybe put them in another tier level law school, it will bite them on the back end. You're finding higher failure rates of the bar relative to, let's say, if they would have been in what's considered a lower-level law school, but they're more likely to pass the bar, which is ultimately what you want. And, and, and more likely to learn more, because that's the thing. Uh, try learning French uh, by just going into an advanced French class as your introduction. You'll understand none of it. The way you learn French or any other language or any other topic, for that matter, is with increasing doses of information. 
And the problem when you take students who are not well matched with their classmates and the school is they are in a torrent of information instead of starting out uh, on the less deep end of the pool. Uh, I realize I've mixed a bunch of metaphors in there, <laughs> but the the point I hope is clear that it's not about uh, whether they can succeed. It's the right environment for anybody to succeed. And this is why we see when black students are admitted undergraduate uh, to schools that they're mismatched with, they their uh, failure rate in the STEM, right, the sciences and technology, mathematics, areas, engineering, uh, is remarkably low. So what we're doing is by, quote, benefiting, end quote, students, black students in particular, minorities uh, somewhat more broadly, by giving them this huge preference when uh, to go to college, is that we're basically telling them, you can't be a STEM major because you don't have the background to be a STEM major. I had this in some respects, when I went to college and I took a, um, a chemistry class in college and I leaned over to, to the student next to me and I said, do you follow what's going on? I don't follow what's going on. And he said to me, well, yeah, just like AP chemistry. And I said, but <laughs> I took AP physics, not AP chemistry. And he goes, oh, then you got a problem. That's the point, right? I wasn't well matched for that class. Not that I couldn't learn chemistry, just not in that class. And I dropped it. So this is the problem. We are not helping students by dropping them into the English channel and saying, hey, learn to swim. Not a good idea. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and you can never change the trajectory of, of natural law. And, and that's really what you're doing. And then at the back end, you're either going to fail them more or eventually they're going to feel guilty about that. And then you're going to start having you know, affirmative action on the back end. And there's a lot of concerns on, I know, medical schools, kind of a parallel thing. So, you know, I think the public really does get this. The point you're making, uh, the fairness really in both directions right. is a problem. But then, obviously, we have this other issue, which is, you know, okay, the, the these type of people behind this, there's a whole institution behind this mentality. They're not just going to give up easily. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, it's the end of affirmative action. Well, I mean, you find in red state governments, we're still having these small business loans. Well, if you're a black small business, you get X number. Well, I mean, that's that's unconstitutional. So you are trying to work on this to and this was regardless of the Supreme Court ruling. Um, but certainly now I feel like we have more tailwinds. Arkansas SB 71, I know you are working on drafting it. So right now we have eight states, I believe. Nine, that we're up to nine. Yeah. We're up to nine, yeah, that yeah. ban uh, some degree of affirmative action in parts of the public sector, you know, state government, uh, employment, or education. Uh, so it's not even that broad, but a lot of states, including red states like Arkansas, do not have that. Describe SB 71, what happened and what you're trying to do and how that could be replicated. Yeah, so we just basically borrowed uh, from California with what they did with Prop uh, 209, which was to uh, end affirmative action only in the governmental context, only in the public context. And uh, State Senator Dan Sullivan uh, authored a bill. Uh, it was co-sponsored in the House by Justice Gonzalez, a, a state representative, of course. And that bill made it through the Senate committee, through the full Senate, through the House committee, and then failed 
quite significantly on the House floor uh, because, frankly, there are too many uh, denominated Republicans uh, in the party here in Arkansas that don't abide by conservative values. Indeed, it's a plank in our platform, but that was disregarded by those members. Of course, the Democrats voted against that, but I don't blame a mosquito for stinging me. I just try to swat it away. <laughs> uh, but the Democrats are supposed to vote against it. There's only 14 of them in the House. They didn't kill the bill. The Republicans killed the bill. Uh, and that's really unfortunate. Now, uh, and that was before this opinion came out, needless to say. Uh, and so now the opinion has come out. And in fact, I have a column uh, coming out this Sunday. I write a weekly column in the state's newspaper, the Democrat Gazette. Um, Democrat doesn't refer to party, it refers to democracy. And uh, the column uh, asks the governor to put this on the agenda for the current session, which is called a fiscal session. Well, it's coming up in January, meaning we have alternating years. We don't have a full legislative session coming up in 2024. We have a fiscal session. But you can bring up regular bills uh, in a variety of ways, but one way is by the governor asking for it to be brought up. So I'm asking for the governor to ask the legislature, to tell the legislature to bring up this issue. Uh, we'll see if she's interested, uh, because this really is at the core of the conservative movement. And now that we have this opportunity, like you say, we're either at the end of the beginning uh, um, or the beginning of the next step, uh, but it's, we're certainly not all the way there. And there's a lot more that needs to be done. And passing the laws that exist in only nine states, uh, in other states, including, of course, very conservative Arkansas, uh, is the next step. And you highlighted something that I'm not sure you realize is going on in Arkansas, that a state department uh, just put out uh, a, a statement, uh, the Arkansas Economic Development Commission, say, well, you know, we're very interested in loans for minorities and loans for women. Well, you just put out a statement <laughs> that's in uh, contravention of the law. And that statement came out after the Supreme Court opinion. So this... Yeah. So this is the point. Yeah, I mean, this is what drives me nuts. It's right. like, you know, it's like the Supreme Court could rule just like the world's upside down that, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, all 8 billion people have an affirmative right to immigrate, you know, right. 8 billion people. In the world. And like in three seconds, it's like, boom, it's like there's the, but but when it's the other way around, it's like, and this was a pretty categorical ruling. I mean, to, to elevate one race over another in terms of a government policy, uh, you know, procurement, hiring. Even, I mean, it, it didn't technically deal with that area, but it clearly applies to that. 100%. Um, you know, that violates the 14th Amendment and really the Declaration of Independence. I mean, just the, the values that our country is founded upon, it's obvious. Everyone knows it, whether you like it or agree with the policy or not. It definitely cannot be constitutional. And yet it's still going on even in red states. So I, I just want to get a little political before you move back to the law, yeah. I, you know, I want our listeners to understand that the country's closely divided. The Senate's been roughly 50-50 for a while. So imagine having a Senate, in your case it's the House, but the Senate's kind of a similar ratio, in 82 to 18 majority. I just looked it up, okay? Like, how in the world does – and this didn't even go after the private sector, which I want to get to. This was just like no – Discrimination based on sex, race, national origin, and procurement, hiring, and education. Public, okay? How, what, did, what did these Republicans say? I don't get it. What about the governor? 
Well, look, that, that's the question is, why did these Republicans vote against it? And they had all sorts of excuses, uh, but the excuses didn't hold water. Uh, and it's time to step up and be a, a, a conservative. Part of the problem, mind you, is that some of the Republicans were Democrats a handful of years ago, and they switched parties to stay in office or to get into office. And they apparently haven't switched philosophy. Uh, but others are just not committed enough uh, to stand by what's in our platform. And of course, but, but who's pushing it? Is it the Chamber of Commerce? Like, what special interest? would be against it that if you're a Republican, you're scared of in a state like Arkansas? It's a great question, right? Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't know where the chamber is on this. Uh, the chamber has done many things that I'm not particularly happy with. So uh, I can add that to the list if it's the case. But I don't know in this instance whether uh, they're against um, uh, cramping down on discrimination by the government, because that's what affirmative action is. Uh, but, you know, it's a great question. Part of the problem is I'm not sure there's a definitive answer that is it driven from the outside or is it driven by simply a lack of committed commitment by these elected officials? I don't know the answer. Are they scared of getting called names? I I think that's part of it. You remember the day before Trump was president that when uh, Republicans uh, went up against Democrats, uh, Democrats would invariably uh, call them racist for anything. Just call them. And too many Republicans ran scared. And then after Trump was elected, we started to see a change in attitude, which was uh, for elected Republicans to say, don't call me names. That's not true. And I'm not going to run away. Uh, But some of these Republicans are running away. And we need more backbone. uh, And we need to pass this. And we need to pass it now. And, And in many states, again, this is a very important message that a lot of people miss. My colleagues all love you know, they love like elections. They think they're self-executing. That's right. Oh, Republicans won. And I, I'm telling I, I tell them all the time. Well, in 50 percent of the country, they have super majorities or they win all the time. And it's not self-executing. It doesn't happen on its own. you got to fight for the policy outcomes. you got to fight for the legislation and, and court, even the court opinions, at least when it's on our side. Um, you know, it was a great opinion. I'm not trying to downplay it, but just the opposite. You use that as political momentum to then go and actually bring this past the goal line because at the end of the day, it's still happening. Even in red states, we know it. I have a niece who's applying to law, to uh, medical school and she she knows that yeah. it's a strike against her not being, uh, you know, a darker shade of skin is going to be against her. And and it and it definitely is a problem. <clears throat> and and look, there, there's well, some of it also should, that the court the she, court she can't patrol. She should be thankful she's not Asian. Why do I say that? Because Asians are discriminated even against, uh, even more so than she's discriminated against, and she's discriminated against. Uh, you know, I say that as an example to say this isn't even about uh, white versus minority. Somehow, Asians have fallen off the list of minorities uh, in terms <laughs> of admissions to school. They're no longer a minority. And these false memes, by the way, about, oh, it's a bunch of rich Asians. You know, most Asians in America are middle class or lower. Uh, and this notion that somehow they have lived a privileged life historically in America is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. It's, it's nonsense. 
And it's also a diverse set of Asians too. It's kind of a exactly. massive continent. You know, there's a lot of different types and 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 multiple like Indians are That's right. uh you know at at the you know the short end of the stick of affirmative action but the far east Asians as well. So, you know, there's a lot of different ones, but my my point is that you know the court itself is not going to be able to police the subterfuge. That's right. That you know these other games they're going to play, but Shouldn't it be incumbent upon this, you know, if you're a red state, I mean, these are state institutions, let's say you have University of Arkansas, University of Florida, whatever, they should really be able to make it clear that, hey, we're going to be looking at this. So what are some ways that, you know, short of quota, so they're not going to do that out the front door now because they'll, you know, be targeted for lawsuit, but what are some ways to ensure that that they're not engaging in subterfuge to yeah. try to make sure they have a back-ended quota system. Well, we've got to look at how they're admitting students. You hear now in the media, oh, schools are talking about dropping the SATs or the LSATs or the MCATs. Why? Because they are afraid that in a handful of years from now, someone will bring suit, like Edward Bloom did in this case, and say, give us the data on your admission." And they will show that the admissions still are admitting students, minority students, with highly disparate grades. So what do they do? They can either get rid of their hidden affirmative action or get rid of the scores on the entrance exam. And they're talking about getting rid of the scores on the entrance exam. So states need to ensure that their public universities are maintaining standards by continuing to require these exams, which are good measures of ability. Not the be-all and end-all, because nothing is. But here's the thing. What are they replacing it with? Hot air. Oh, well, you see, what we want to do is we want to look at the students, they say. Uh, do they exhibit leadership skill and grit? Grit, like the stuff that sandpaper is made out of when you look <laughs> for 100 grits at the Home Depot. Is that stamped on the head of a student? Well, you're more abrasive and therefore have more grit than the next guy? How are you measuring grit? You ain't. You ain't. It's cover <laughs> for these race-based admissions programs. Yep. So we need yep. to speak to valid metrics. Hey, continue to have interviews, continue to, to look at yes. extracurricular activities, but you need to look at these merit-based measures. And I don't want to hear this nonsense. Like I, I, I saw in the Wyoming legislative session, we had a bunch of these rhinos were like, and this was with regard to the pornography in in the libraries there, and the different the gender studies as well. And they're like, it's none of our business. And I'm like, what do you mean? This is the University Wait, of Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the legislature funds it, and so we need to get back to this notion that you know the left, when they control something, they make sure it reflects their values. We should make sure if you're in a red state that, you know, the state universities should not be as left wing as they are in California. Uh, you don't have to make them affirmatively right wing, but just certainly the, the things like fairness and affirmative action should be stamped out. And I think there should be heavy handed regulations that that try to police some of these back ended quotas that they try to do because it is public. But here's what I want to end. With. I want to take this to the next level. Yeah. private institutions. So so and not just education but obviously you have all these mega corporations that are openly have these hiring programs that uh, openly discriminate against certain types and they say we're only looking for blacks, we're only looking for this. So so here's the thing. Obviously from the constitution standpoint, 
Um, you know, a private entity could say, I don't like X group. I want this group. You're able to do that. But kind um, of, though, right? Kind of, depends what kind of private entity. Because remember, uh, in the uh-huh. 60s, when we passed the Civil Rights Act, which includes Title VI, which is what was used against um, yes. uh, UNC, includes Title VII, which says you can't discriminate against uh, people in employment. And we have public accommodations, meaning Denny's can't say only whites allowed because the court determined that we can. Con- it was a controversial that, point. That's fact, what I right? wanted to say. Yeah. So our side, you know, again, generically, ideologically, I don't like getting involved in such regulations. Right. Like if I were starting a country anew, which right. we didn't have. But right. like you said, the 60s changed that. We do have sure. Title VI in education. We do have Title VII in employment. And it's not just public, but private as well. If if I were to have a company that I said, for these jobs, we really only want whites, I would get hit with a lawsuit right. very quickly, and I would likely lose. You will so lose. my yes. my philosophy is, and I want to see if you agree on what we need to do in these red states, shouldn't we – again, you're not getting rid of this stuff. We're not getting rid right. of Title VI and Title VII. Exactly. Shouldn't that be applied evenly? 100%. You know, this is – and you're absolutely right, conservatives – uh, don't sort of follow through enough on some of these issues. That is, Title Seven, uh, the legality of Title Seven has been decided uh, since the '60s, uh, and it says that it applies to private businesses. So it's already applying. Well, we shouldn't go into a battle unarmed. We have Title Seven. Mm. If people are being discriminated against because they're white, because they're Asian, and Title Seven says you're not allowed to do that, we absolutely need to bring those uh, cases. The Title VII doesn't only exist for, say, African Americans and Hispanics. And indeed, years ago, I uh, litigated a Title VII case uh, uh, for a guy, a white guy, and it was, as they called it, a reverse discrimination case. Now, in reality, it's not reverse discrimination, it's just discrimination. <laughs> but I, I hate that term, the, yeah. Right. But I understand sort of why people use it. It's a shorthand for saying discrimination against, in this case, it was white. But absolutely, that's the law, uh, and it's well-settled law. So, sorry, you, you know, you may have principles that say, well, in the grand scheme of things, I wouldn't have set up the law that way, but it's the law. So use it. Exactly. So to me, all of these DEI programs that you have, certainly even in the red states where they don't have it in government, which they a lot, a lot kind of do – but, you know, and, and, and your bill, again, you got to walk before you run. And I understand you're starting with SB 71 is, is public. But but I, I'm glad that you're you're behind this. I, I believe that you and I said the same thing with disability. We have ADA. We have OSHA. We have anti-discrimination. So then suddenly when it came to like you have to spend a million dollars to build ramps and this and affirmative accommodations. Then when it came to covid, like I could literally you know, you could you could have asthma. You could have um, a rape victim that 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 can't put anything in our mouth. You won't get serviced. You'll drummed out of all economy if you don't wear a mask. Like like whoa. I mean, uh, shut up, Daniel. Private sector do whatever they want. I'm like, really? <laughs> That's news to me. You know, I I don't like adding new layers, but okay. I do like you know, like you said, not going into a battle. Um, you know, where they're armed and we're not, if, if inevitably you're going to have these laws, which clearly, you know, whether we like them or not, they're like on par with the Constitution. We're not getting rid of them. So I would love to see us go after this DEI stuff, not just the um, programs, which, 
you know, I mean, if you're a private company, you could teach whatever stupidity you want and have whatever seminar you want, but it's not just the seminar. It's in their hiring practices. Um, they're, they're clearly elevating race. And, you know, you see it in every layer of society. So um, my hope is that, A, we could start, you know, more aggressively pushing laws, but B, you know, litigating based on Thomas and Gorsuch's uh, concurrence, which, you know, they said it's not just the 14th Amendment, but but Title VI violation and with employment would be Title VII, and that would reverberate to the private sector as well. Um, my, my final question, I just want to, I know we're, we're pretty much out of time here. I do see some of these left-wing groups have filed, based on this, this ruling, complaint against Harvard for legacy admissions. So they're trying to say, yeah. all right, you're saying you can't, you know, discriminate based on status. Well, you know, you guys consider family ties to donors or alumni when deciding whether to admit students, and that should be a problem too. What's your legal opinion on that? Twofold. One is morally, they're 100% right. Uh, because places like Harvard hold themselves out as institutions of excellence and that they admit people based on merit, and it's not entirely true. In fact, it's often not true. One example, of of course, was affirmative action, but legacy is just as bad, and it should be eliminated. However, the legal standing is not the same, right? Because Title VII bars... uh, in employment context, Title VI in education co- uh, context, and of course the Fourteenth Amendment in the public uh, arena, uh, all three of them bar discrimination based on race. And legacy is not race, so I yeah. think they have a more difficult legal challenge. But I think morally they're entirely right, and I hope legacy is eliminated. I don't see that as being appropriate in, in any sort of institution yeah. that claims to be based on merit. But it's not the same legal argument no. that hey, you know, your your parents donated more money. I mean, there's right. nothing in the constitution or or any statute precluding that. But again, the point is, folks, I just hope you see from Professor Steinbuck here there this is a, such a so much of a broader issue than just college admissions. Oh yeah. And it really is so pervasive for for an entire two generations and it's not going to be stamped out alone and that's why we got to work build on this momentum legally. Uh, policy-wise in the legislature. Uh, where could people find more of your work? Well, <laughs> excuse me. Uh, you can look on the database called SSRN. Uh, that is a, a public database that allows you to access articles. I don't have all of my, nearly all of my articles up there, but the one that uh, Justice Thomas cites to is up there. So start there. And then, of course, you can contact me at the university. Um, uh, you know, my, my uh, name and likeness are on the university website. Send me an email. It's resteinbuck at U-A-L-R dot E-D-U. But if you didn't catch it, just Google it. Uh, and uh, I look forward to hearing from anyone who's interested in this topic, because I always like to share uh, the research that I've done to help move the ball forward on this issue. Perfect, and you certainly have moved the ball forward. Let's move it past the goal line. Looking forward to having you back, keeping us updated on this legislation in Arkansas and around the country. Take care and hope you come back soon. And folks, you know, that was just terrific. He's a real happy warrior. Glad I met him. Um, Not just an academic, but he gets on the playing field. You know, he'll do litigation and 
and obviously helped write this bill in Arkansas that shockingly went down. I mean, all, all our guys like, ha, 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 affirmative action is dead. Dead my foot. I mean, it's not dead even in the red states, and we can't even rectify it in some places. Now, hopefully after this ruling, because, oh, the Supreme Court said so, there'll be more pressure. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders, where the hell is she? Her silence in that debate was pretty jarring. Um, and, you know, she needs to really get on this. And and again, that's only public, but I, I actually do believe in, in private sector. Because the bottom line is, if there's any whiff that you are discriminating against blacks in hiring, you will get a lawsuit and you will lose. Often even when it's not true. So I have no problem applying it evenly. And this is what I've been saying throughout the time. I don't want to put a new regulation on the private sector that didn't exist very you know, readily um, just to achieve an outcome that we feel we need. But again, this is very similar to why you needed Title VII. Because at a systemic level, the government has imbued in society and often incentivized and worked with society and often the previous court decisions incentivized it and mandated it too uh, to, to work against some groups of people in favor of others. So I have no problem applying that and I think we need to go after some of these corporate hiring practices um, you know, in, in a lot of these states. Now, I just will point out my old adage the ability of a good court decision to do good is nowhere near the bad, the ability of a bad court opinion to do bad. And like like we're saying, you know, on its own, this opinion on identity politics with Harvard is not going to be that broad. But on the other hand, on the other ledger, the other side of the ledger that we start out with today, the gender stuff. So, you know, we're finally getting red states to go and deal with the castration and this stuff. You know, some of you might have noticed we talked about a couple of these cases. One after another, the, the courts are so-called striking them down. Now, a lot of them hopefully will be overturned at the appellate level because, you know, they typically shop them around to liberal judges at a district level. But all these things, whether it's the, the castration stuff or the drag shows, um, the puberty blockers, whatever, we have, we have a problem. Of the 20 states that have passed laws restricting castration for minors, 11 have faced lawsuits. And five have had their stuff partially or fully blocked under the grounds that it violates the 14th Amendment. Arkansas, Alabama, Indiana, Kentucky, and Florida. Now, in Florida, I have no doubt that the 11th Circuit will um, overturn that. But my point is that I still do believe that... If you put a gun to my head and say, Daniel, are we going to fight the left on their effort to delegitimize the court or actually agree with them and say, all right, you want to delegitimize it? Let's shake hands and do it evenly. I take the latter because, again, the ability of a good court opinion to do good is much more limited than the ability of a bad court opinion to do bad for, for a variety of legal and political reasons. And just the gap between the energy and brazenness of the two movements and parties, although we don't have a movement, only they have a movement, that's kind of why we have an industry. So either way, in order to get good things, you're going to have to fight it out legislatively, in my view. So, you know, all the courts could do is just put a veto on the things that we actually do fight and win legislatively. And that's why I'm still, even after, you know, kind of a record of the last two years of, of good court opinions we've seen from the Supreme Court, 
I still maintain my opinion. I would rather de-emphasize judicial supremacism rather than elevating and crying about the left's attempts to to water down the courts. I join with them. That's just my opinion there. But anyway, wanted a little bit of a change of pace. Tomorrow we're also going to have a change of pace. We're going to do a special show on cancer, cancer treatment. Um, are we getting it all wrong? Is that the other big lie aside from COVID and big pharma? And, and you know, where does cancer come from? Why is it exploding? Are we approaching it the wrong way with this kind of chemotherapy-based approach? Are there better alternatives? Uh, let me know your questions for Dr. Paul Merrick tomorrow. You can email me, Daniel Hurwitz at startmail.com. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.